Chapter Twenty Eight of Anglo American Memories by George Washburn Smalley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Eight: Sir Wilfrid Laurier and the Alaska Boundary. One. The name of Empire Builder is used freely of late, perhaps too freely. It is so great a name that it ought to be kept for the great men, for the real builders and creators, for Clive, for Rhodes and their like there is another class somewhat more numerous but not much who keep together the great imperial patrimony which others have handed down to them they might perhaps be called wardens of empire of whom sir wilfrid laurier may stand for an example my memories of sir wilfrid laurier go back to those years when the alaska boundary dispute between canada and the united states approached its crisis lord minto was then governor-general of canada mr mckinley was president of the united states mr hay was the american secretary of state there was strong feeling on both sides it appeared later that it was stronger in canada than in the united states but in both countries there was hot blood and in both the controversy turned in part upon gold we were carrying on under a modus vivendi a state of things which tended to tranquilize the minds of men but the modus vivendi did not cover the whole of the alaskan territory then in dispute and there was anxiety both in washington and ottawa i went to ottawa on a visit spent a week at government house and there first came to know sir wilfrid laurier who had been prime minister of the dominion since eighteen ninety six first impressions are best and i set down my first impressions though they do not much differ from the last and though in one way they were wholly deceptive and misleading for sir wilfrid came so softly into the drawing-room at government house that you would never have thought him a leader of men he had something of the ecclesiastic about him and something of the diplomatist the first perhaps suggested itself because he was a roman catholic and to that faith all my puritan prejudices were alien as i think it over i know of no fact in the current history of the british empire more significant than the fact that the greatest dominion of this great british and protestant power should have been governed for thirteen years by a roman catholic and a frenchman that is catholicism in its broadest sense and not in the sense of mere loyalty to a pope and to a particular church taking the population of canada as something over six millions to-day nearly one half are roman catholics the other half are implacable protestants how are they to live together in amity but they do and one of the reasons of this amity is sir wilfrid laurier if he were a leader of men in the military sense or as chatham was a leader one of two things would have happened quebec and ontario would have quarrelled or sir wilfrid would have ceased to be prime minister booted and spurred and in the saddle not so is canada to be ruled nor are the conflicting interests and sentiments of the eastern and western sections of the great dominion so to be harmonized but the smooth subtlety of the priest and the suavity of the diplomatist are means of conciliation thus i imagine has sir wilfrid worked thus does he present himself to the company at government house he glides into the room he is not humble far from it but his is perhaps the pride which apes humility 
sweetness enters with him and light if i may once more unite rather overworked substantives which have come down to us from swift he does light up the room as he enters and the faces of those who are already in it his coming is a delight to everybody and now we know what is before us his manner as he receives and returns the greetings of his friends is distinctly french after all the guests have arrived and the governor-general and lady minto have entered the room sir wilfrid's homage to the representative of the sovereign and to lady minto has an essentially parisian elegance nobody would mistake him for an englishman by birth or race he is english politically and officially none more loyal to the king of england and england herself than he but personally he is french taller however than the average frenchman and of a larger frame the head is well set the forehead broad and high a soft light in the eyes till something is said which sets them burning the mouth firm and the whole face in contour and expression quite as much that of the man of thought as action there are not many men of whom another man uses the word charm but sir wilfrid is one and women use it of him more freely still he talked easily and well he speaks english and french with equal fluency with finnish also and is never at a loss for an idiomatic phrase yet the english is not quite the english heard to-day in london nor is his french parisian the canadians have in addition to many other kinds the patriotism of language quebec has its own french the french of the eighteenth century or of touraine to-day and toronto its own english also now and then slightly archaic yet in toronto dwells and has long dwelt the first of living writers of living english i mean mr goldwin smith the fires of his intellectual youth still at eighty-three unquenched and by another paradox the english author of the best political history of the united states canada does not like his canadian views but they remain his views just as he for all his canadian residents remains english perhaps it is part of sir wilfrid's diplomacy that he practises both these varieties of french and english speech he takes liberties with each language as a man who is master of both is entitled to and in each his soft tones are persuasive nothing seems to come amiss to him the social topics of ottawa have not quite the same range as in london but to the people of ottawa they are not less engrossing even scandal was not unknown in those days and gossip floated about and sometimes politics came to the top as they will anywhere when they are not too trivial and even when they are ottawa was at any rate with its fifty thousand people and its lumber trade the capital of sir wilfrid's kingdom parliament was sitting in that finely placed parliament house crowning the cliff on the river and all canada was there in the substantial persons of its delegates and ministers before i left i came to know all or nearly all the ministers lunching one day with sir wilfrid at the rideau club i found myself in a group of a dozen or more political personages all i think in office they struck me as able men with a gift of business-like talk but there were not two sir wilfrid lauriers the long reign of sir john macdonald had not proved fertile in new men 
sir john was a sort of canadian diaz and had done for the dominion not what the president of the great central american republic had done for mexico but a service not less personal and individual both had been dictators both had known how to use the forms of representative government in such a way as to consolidate and perpetuate arbitrary personal power and for something like the same period in a way sir wilfrid has done a similar thing only you never could think a minister of these endearing manners arbitrary there is a more important difference still sir john macdonald had organized political corruption into a system sir wilfrid is free from any such imputation as that charges have been heard against some of his ministers never against sir wilfrid it was perhaps by accident that we began to discuss the alaska boundary or perhaps not by accident i do not know thinking the matter over afterward it seemed possible enough that sir wilfrid had shaped events in his own mind from the first he may have been glad of an opportunity to communicate with washington indirectly and unofficially or desirous that the president should know what was in his mind and learn it otherwise than via london he was very anxious as well he might be i had lately been in washington and knew pretty well the views of the president and of mr hay i had made two or three visits to ottawa before the alaska conversations with sir wilfrid took place in the interval mr mckinley had ceased to be president he had been murdered by a foreigner with an unpronounceable name and while the murderer was waiting in his cell to be executed the american women suffragists of the militant kind had sent him to quote an american writer flowers jellies books and sympathy the discipline of the prison did not forbid these gifts mr roosevelt had become president mr hay remained secretary of state perhaps with a hand less free than he had under mr mckinley who was aware that he himself was not master of all subjects or perhaps of any subject not essentially american when the moment came sir wilfrid began casually enough in a way that would have allowed him to stop whenever he chose but he went on and after a talk at government house one day asked me to call on him at parliament house on the morrow there again the talk continued and it was followed by one still longer when sir wilfrid came back to government house next day with papers and maps over these we spent some hours there were few details in all the complicated alaska business which were not familiar to him and of the whole question he had a grasp which made details almost unimportant his view struck me as reasoned detached with a settled purpose behind it he was quite ready for compromise i never knew a statesman anywhere who was not with the possible exception of the ninety-two statesmen who composed the united states senate for myself i had to look two ways i was obliged that is to understand both points of view the canadian and the american for i was then the representative of the times in the united states when we had gone over the whole matter i said to sir wilfrid that i thought i understood his opinions and the policy he desired to follow but what was i to do not a word of what he had said to me could have been intended for print nor can it be printed now even after all these years and after the settlement but some object he must have had 
and i asked him if i was at liberty to draw any inference from these interviews i was leaving ottawa the next day are you going to washington yes shall you see the president or mr hay both well if you think anything you have heard here likely to interest the president or mr hay i don't see why you should not discuss the matter with them as you have with me if they choose the story of what happened at washington i reserve for another chapter but sir wilfrid's way of dealing with the subject on this occasion may perhaps stand for an example of what i have called his diplomatic manner he was not over-solicitous about precedents or formalities he was quite ready to avail himself of such opportunities as chance offered him and of such instruments as came in his way his absolute good faith was beyond question if his suggestions or rather the frank statement of his own view and of what he was ready to do had proved acceptable at washington he would have put them into official shape and there would presently have been a dispatch from the foreign office to the state department and history would have been differently written why this did not happen will appear when the washington end of the story is told two leaving ottawa the day after the last of these conversations with the canadian prime minister i went to washington there i saw both the president and mr hay i said of course i had no authority to bind sir wilfrid laurier to anything but i had a strong impression and this impression i laid before them as a matter of convenience i had drawn up a memorandum of which i had sent sir wilfrid laurier a copy when mr hay asked me whether i had any notes of my conversations with the canadian prime minister i handed him this memorandum rather a long document he wished it read to him and it was then we talked it over mr hay said i suppose you will see the president i shall see him also but i think it will be better you should make your statement to him separately my belief is that both of them would have been disposed to consider the canadian prime minister's attitude a reasonable one and if an official proposal in that sense had been made and if it had rested with the president to say yes or no he would have accepted it but acceptance involved a treaty and what was the use of agreeing to a treaty which had to run the gauntlet of the united states senate the graveyard of treaties the senate at that time was in one of its most irreconcilable moods in truth the president had found himself more than once in collision with the senate and the moment was not propitious certain senators moreover had fixed opinions as to the proper disposition of this alaska dispute and from these opinions it was known they would not depart at another time when i hope to have something to say about mr roosevelt i may add a little though not much to this brief account it can never be treated except with great reserve i had told sir wilfrid when i said good-bye that i feared the senate would prove an invincible obstacle to an agreement i saw the president several times and the whole matter was gone into after my last conversation with him which did not end till past one o'clock in the morning i wrote sir wilfrid that i saw no chance at present of carrying the matter further he answered very kindly but regretfully and so all this ended without result for the time being i add only that the sagacity of the canadian the statesmanlike sagacity impressed the president and mr hay alike 
if it had been possible to lay the whole story before the senate it might have impressed that body also but jefferson's phrase about government by newspapers applies or part of it applies to the senate or shall i say to part of the senate whatever is known to the senate soon becomes known to the newspapers a single illustration will suffice the senate transacts executive business in secret session the galleries are cleared the press gallery as well as the others but within an hour of the close of an executive session a full abstract of its proceedings is in the hands of the press agents besides i had no authority to repeat what sir wilfrid had said to anybody but the president and mr a sir wilfrid is a man so free from official pedantry or even conventionalities that i think it likely he would have agreed to an informal communication to the senate but he was not asked there was no occasion to ask him the objections were too evident mr hay said anything i favor the senate will oppose of the president some very leading senators were not less suspicious there was to be no agreement until the senate could dictate terms the subsequent agreement for an alaska boundary commission was a senate agreement it did not provide for arbitration if it had the senate would have rejected it it was not supposed that a tribunal composed of three members from each side would reach a decision all men now know that if it did it was because the lord chief justice of england conceived it to be his duty to vote in accordance with the facts and the law he had not laid aside his judicial character when he became a commissioner as it was lord alverston's vote which turned the scale in favour of the united states the canadians attacked him with bitterness he made one reply and one only and even this had no direct reference to canada speaking at a dinner in london he said if when any kind of arbitration is set up they don't want a decision based on the law and the evidence they must not put a british judge on the commission writing as an american i think it due to lord alveston to say that nothing ever did more to convince americans of british fairness than his act it was his act also that put to rest a controversy which in the opinion of canadian statesmen and american statesmen alike contained elements of the gravest danger to peace if he had done nothing else he would take his place in history as a great lord chief justice the briton is so constituted that it is probable he admires lord alverston formerly richard and then sir richard webster almost as much for his renown in sport as for his professional eminence of which to be tubman and then postman in the court of exchequer was one part he was and is an athlete and used to win running races and perhaps still could being now only sixty-seven years of age you used always to hear him spoken of as dick webster at cambridge university he had such eminence in the study of mathematics as entitled him to be thirty-fifth wrangler and in the more humane letters so much proficiency as made him third-class classic in the schools that is he was less energetic than on the track but success at the bar does not depend on the differential calculus or on latin and greek within ten years after being called he was q c and having found a seat in parliament became attorney-general in lord salisbury's government in eighteen eighty five to six 
within seventeen years he had reached the highest unjudicial place in his profession he held the same office three times then was made master of the rolls the judge who in point of dignity comes next after the lord chancellor and the lord chief justice and finally in nineteen hundred lord chief justice of england during his service at the bar he had been a great patent lawyer with an income which rumour put at thirty thousand pounds or a hundred and fifty thousand dollars for this country perhaps the maximum outside of the parliamentary bar such is a bare outline of the career in all respects distinguished honourable stainless of the man on whom canada poured out criticism which did not stop short of vituperation they need no answer if they did it was not my place to answer them not one human being in england believed lord alveston capable of the dishonesty which the canadian papers imputed to him i am afraid i must add that sir wilfrid laurier was one of lord alverston's critics the feeling throughout canada was so strong that he had perhaps no choice or no choice but between that and either resignation or defeat no pilot could weather that storm the feeling of canada was emotional what he said he said as prime minister yet whether as prime minister or as sir wilfrid laurier he must have rejoiced in the settlement even though it were at the expense of canadian claims i do not think canada had any valid claims or had a case which before any impartial tribunal could have been maintained but whether she had or not it was for her interest to see them once for all swept away and peace and good feeling established between her and her neighbour our canadian friends must have been aware at the time that they stood alone in their attacks on lord alverston they had no backing in england no english newspaper ever suggested that lord alverston had voted otherwise than according to his conscience england knew him to be incorruptible and unassailable and laughed at the suggestion that he did not understand the canadian claims it was because he understood them that he decided against them the english it is true have thought themselves unlucky in arbitrations and have fallen into the habit of expecting an adverse decision from an arbitration tribunal the geneva tribunal instilled into them that reluctant expectation but as this was not an arbitration but simply a commission for determining the true boundary line of alaska they accepted in a sporting spirit the judgment of their own lord chief justice how could they do otherwise on the constitution of the tribunal and on the claims of senator lodge and senator turner to be impartial they had remarks to make on the other hand were the canadian members impartial there can be no harm now in saying that sir wilfrid looked upon the alaskan situation with gloomy forebodings so did everybody on both sides of the border everybody who understood the situation and would give himself the trouble to think and had a sense of responsibility in the disputed belt of territory alaskan territory which the united states claimed and canada claimed gold might at any moment be discovered there would come a rush from both sides we all know what the gold miners are a rough lot not always recognizing any law but the law of the strongest and most covetous 
they make laws for themselves and even those they do not keep many of them are desperate many ruined many outlaws many have no other hope than in finding gold somewhere and getting it anyhow they are all armed revolvers are the arbitrators whose decisions they respect in the presence of new-found gold what are boundaries or titles or international relations inevitably they would cross the border into the debatable land canadians and americans alike what would the flag mean to bankrupt gamblers who saw once more the hope of riches there would be disputes there would be collisions at any moment a shot might be fired and then what the risk was awful this i have no doubt was the risk sir wilfrid had in mind it meant nothing less than the possibility of war between great britain and the united states gold once discovered the possibility became a probability could a canadian statesman could an american statesman think of that hazard and not be willing to do much or even to concede much in order to avert it yet of all the men of both nationalities with whom then and after i have talked about alaska sir wilford alone had a clear view of the danger and he alone was willing to do what was absolutely necessary to make war impossible for that reason he stands forth a great patriot a great canadian a great englishman worldwide as is his fame he deserves a greater it is not yet possible to do him full justice it may never be but his views and proposals and large wisdom as they were set forth in these conversations put him in my opinion in the very front rank of statesmen of his time the impression they made on the president and mr hay was profound they too were statesmen but their hands were tied it is further to be borne in mind that the northwestern border was in a ferment that great belt of powerful states conterminous with canada had long nursed its grievances the alaska question did not stand alone it never has there were questions of duties of tariffs of lumber rights of the rights of lake and canal navigation of fisheries atlantic and pacific and many others thirteen specific subjects in all they had once been all but settled the high commissioners in the last conference at washington had come to terms on all but alaska when in an unlucky moment lord herschel believing he could force the hand of the americans put forth an ultimatum out of a blue sky it must be all or none there must be no settlement which does not include alaska lord herschel had been thought of a contentious mind all through americans bore with that but to an ultimatum an agreement at the mouth of a gun we would not submit so the whole went off what was the result there came a time when sir wilfrid himself had to announce that there would be no more pilgrimages to washington nor have there been End of chapter twenty eight